Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1 as we continue our exposition in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1 and that to verse 67. Luke chapter 1 verse 67. And we'll be reading to the end of the chapter. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, as we turn our attention to the exposition of Holy Scripture, we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would not just inform our minds with truth, but sanctify us with the truth, for Your Word is truth. By Your grace, give to us what we need, and that is more of Christ. Reveal to us that need more than anything else. Help us then to see Him, and to hear Him, and to trust Him. Enlarge our hearts to love Him more, We ask these things in His holy and precious name. Amen. When Zechariah exited the temple, he had one last duty to fulfill. And that was to stand before the people of Israel who had gathered to worship outside the steps of the temple and to pronounce the priestly benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In the providence of God, He was selected from hundreds of priests from His division to enter into the inner chambers of the temple to pour incense upon the flaming coals there on the altar. And as the smoke ascended, And as the perfume filled the room, Zechariah was to lift up a prayer on behalf of those whom he served. But there in the middle of his service, God had interrupted him. We know what occurred in the holy place that day. God, by his angel, gave Zechariah a word of promise that he and his wife in their old age would bear a son. A son who would make ready and prepare the people for the Lord. Yet in response, he didn't believe it. Well, by the time he exited the temple to bless the congregation waiting outside, he couldn't do it. 
The Lord had disabled him, struck him deaf and dumb. God had marred him for his unbelief, mangled his senses because of his doubt. And so the priest who was supposed to bless the people of God, he was muted. Well, nine months later, the birth of a baby boy later, an inscription upon a clay tablet later, Zechariah, as it were, he was unmuted. You know, something that we find in this narrative is that God's ways are not our ways. He tends to do things differently. This is, in fact, the case throughout all of redemptive history. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, he says that God is unguessable and not caught in the conventional. And you see, God will at times close the mouth of a preacher and at other times open the mouth of a donkey in order to accomplish His will. Which is to say that God doesn't need us. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. So says Isaiah. He will do all that which pleases Him. God doesn't need us. Now that's not to say that He doesn't use us. In His grace, He draws us into His plans and He uses us for His good purposes. But that is altogether different than to say that He is dependent upon us. As if He cannot accomplish His divine will apart from us. And so no matter how important we may think, He is not impressed with our righteousness. And beloved, the truth of the matter is we have none. Isaiah, he confessed in his prayer, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. What he wants from us are hearts that trust him, souls that love him, wills that obey him. To obey is better than sacrifice. And we can get very used to giving God sacrifice. We can, without admission, fall into believing that there is a little bit of self to the credit of our salvation. And you see, I don't doubt that Zechariah had fallen into that same kind of thinking. Zechariah was a priest. And that notice for a considerable amount of time. And through all his years of serving tirelessly in the temple, that trusting upon God in his service became a little bit of a trusting in himself through time. Which is why when he answered back to the angel, remember what he said? He said, how shall I know this? Look at me, for I am an old man. He became so used to the I, how shall I know this, for I am an old man. You see, the reason why Zechariah doubted God was because he was looking at the wrong person. But what lesson did Zechariah learn in the school of God's affliction? His sinful limitations and God's unrestricted freedom. Not I, not I, but God. That God is able to do the impossible. That God will fulfill His promises. That God will do all that He pleases. You see, He does not need us. He simply wants us to look to Him in trusting faith. Well, after nine humbling months, when God unmuted the mouth of Zechariah, his first words 
were not a song about himself, but a song solely about God. A song about the salvation which God has promised and accomplished in the Savior. All Zechariah could do was sing about God's redeeming grace. And this is what we have here in the passage of Luke before us. We are introduced to another song. And as we've seen before, another musical masterpiece. Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song which magnified the Lord is followed by Zechariah's Benedictus, titled after the first word, Blessed. Blessed. And this is what this song is. It is a blessing to God. And so notice that Zechariah, who was unable to bless the congregation, is now giving all honor and praise and glory and blessing to God. His words of unbelief have now turned into words of praise. Now, two quick details here that we ought to notice before we get into this Spirit-inspired hymn. And these details are provided for us in verse 67. That when his mouth was opened, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. That he who had formerly grieved the Holy Spirit by his unbelief, we're told that he was now filled with the Holy Spirit. That he who had formerly rejected God's word was now declaring God's holy and infallible and spirit-inspired word. What a change. What a transformation. What a grace. You see, Zechariah had been changed. He was no longer the same. And like Mary, he sings out of the overflow of his heart. Now this song is divided into two parts. The first begins in verse 68 and ends in verse 75. And the second part begins in verse 76 and ends in verse 79. And those two parts will give us some structure as we go through Zechariah's benediction. But I'll be providing some key points along the way within each part. Well, we begin in the first part or the first verse of the song by asking, when Zechariah's silence was broken, what came forth from his lips? I mean, he could have talked about his life-changing experience, right? He could have talked about all that had taken place in the temple, that right when his mouth was opened, let me tell you what happened to me nine months ago. Or he could have sung about his restored ability to speak. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me and to function as he had been before his encounter. Or he could have thanked God for giving him and his wife a baby boy after years and years of trying. That could have been his song. But what had been growing in his heart, rising up within his soul, was praise to God for the salvation he was providing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Those are the very first words that come out of his mouth. What came forth from his lips was an eruption of blessing, a stream of exaltation for God's redeeming grace. Now if you notice here in this song, there are a lot of similarities between Zechariah's Benedictus and Mary's Magnificat. They were both the primary soloists who sang the very first songs about the Messiah's birth. 
And notice they also share the same grammar. Both songs were sung not in the future tense, but in the past tense. Notice Zechariah's verb tenses. He has visited. He has redeemed. He has raised up. He has saved. His promise to save is so sure and certain that like Mary, Zechariah sings as if it were already accomplished. His song is, it's right. Because God's Word is right and true. And like Mary, to no surprise, his song is saturated with Scripture. It is saturated with Scripture. It is full of the Bible, especially from the mouth of the prophets. But what I want us to see here firstly under this first verse is this. This song is about God and His salvation. Praise be to the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. This song is about the redemption which God provides. And You see, this should help inform us as to the basis of our worship and the songs in which we sing. What ought to be the content of our singing? The answer is God and His redeeming work. Who He is and what He has done. That ought to be the substance of our worship. And the reason why that needs to be said is because there are songs that are sung in the Christian church that don't do either of those things. They are more like Novocaine for your soul to simply make you feel good by numbing your mind and maybe meeting certain felt needs. You know, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful for the ministry in which I became a Christian back when I was a college student. But their worship didn't really do the best job in teaching me. One song I distinctly remember was one where the chorus repeats itself over and over like 20 times. Again, the lights were very low. The electric was going, the electric guitar and everything. And the words of the chorus was, set me on fire. And I remember that's all I sang over and over and over. Set me on fire. It's not really like that. It was kind of like that. But it was set me on fire. What we need to sing as God's church is the great truth about our good and holy God and the salvation He provides in Jesus Christ. Not songs that help me to feel positive, but songs that ascend my soul to the throne in heaven that give me a glimpse of the glory of God. Songs that preach a sinless life, a bloody cross, and a powerful resurrection. Which apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there is no worship. Understand? There is no worship. It's not even possible. Without Christ's redemptive work, there are no worshipers. You see, the Gospel calls us together to worship God and gives us the very, the very reason. And so for us, every Sunday is another opportunity to sing about the cross and glory in our Redeemer and marvel at the good news that is Christ for us and Christ in us. To sing songs that teach us about the Savior stirring our hearts to praise Him rather than to simply make declarations about how I'm feeling at the moment and what I'm doing at the moment. This is worship. This is the basis of our singing. And this is what Zachariah's song does. It teaches us about God. 
and His redeeming work in the One who was to come. You know, something to look forward to. I'd like to advertise a lot of our classes. Uh, something to look forward to this fall is a six-lecture class on worship with Pastor MJ, in which I know many will be eager to attend and I know will fill up very quickly. Well, secondly, notice in this New Testament hymn, notice how Zechariah describes this salvation. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Zechariah describes salvation in the words of a visitation. And he's not referring to the visit of Mary to his wife Elizabeth, which we call the visitation. But he's talking about a divine one, a redeeming one. And what's important to note about that word visited is that it is the verb form of the word episkopos. episkopos. And that word might sound somewhat familiar to you. You might think of the Episcopalian church which is called that because of its form of government. It is a church ruled by bishops. But the word episkopos is made up of two parts, a, a prefix and a root. Episkopos, episkopos. And that root word, skopos, is the word in which we get in our English, scope. Scope. So we have microscopes and telescopes. And there's some people who pay money to go see uh, their horoscope, which I hope you don't do. But a scope is something that you, you look through, and so the idea is looking through or, or vision. And this is where we get the word visit. Vision and visit are closely related. When people come to your house to visit you, it's because they want to see. They want to see you, and that's the connection. So scopos has to do with vision, and when you add the prefix epi, you intensify that vision. You might say, Super looking or super vision. And you may work under a supervisor who watches over you at work. He's not just a visor. He's not just a looker, but he's a supervisor. He's a super looker. He's not a casual observer. He's watching you closely. He's looking at things deeply and carefully and fully on every single detail of what you're doing and what is going on. Well, why am I doing this word study here on Episcopos? It's because Zechariah, in describing the salvation of God, says that God has visited His people. That He has looked intently upon the needs of His people. That He has closely and deeply and carefully observed their helplessness. To see that they need redemption. And so he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed His people. And that teaches something about our God, doesn't it? He observes everything in the world. We're told, not, we're told that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. That the hairs of our head are numbered. And that we ought not to fear because we are of more value than sparrows. Psalm 137, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In other words, he sees all and he knows all. And at the end of the day, he knows, he knows, he sees my greatest need. You know, Christian believer, what are one of the things, let me ask you, what are one of the things that keep your 
minds constantly occupied each and every day. And I would say that one of the things that keep us up and keep our minds occupied is that we are not being cared for. And I think this is the root of our anxiety, that we are not being cared for. That God really isn't super looking into our lives. And it causes us to worry and fret and agonize and place our trust in all these other things but Christ. But what do we need to know? We need to know that God who is holy and sovereign, He sees us. And in seeing our greatest need, Christian, He has redeemed us. And here's why we ought not to worry. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, He says this, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, and hear this now, the episkopos, the superlooker, the overseer of your souls. You see, it is Jesus Christ who is our ultimate visitor, who is our overseer. He truly knows us and knows all that we need. He's the one who has come to meet our greatest need. Thirdly, it needs to be pointed out here in this song that this salvation Zachariah sings of it has been planned from ages past. Look with me in verse 69 all the way to the end of the first part of the hymn. He sings, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. Zechariah blesses God, first of all here, that salvation has come, but notice, it hasn't come from His house. Salvation hasn't come from the house of Aaron, in which he was from, but from the house of David. And so as Zechariah looked at himself, and as he looked at his child, he realized, no, salvation is not coming from my house, but it's coming from another house. And he realized that he needed help. He needed help as he and his child were unable to save themselves And so redemption wouldn't come from the house of Aaron, but from the house of David. From the house of David. Now, one of the greatest theological problems that faced the people of old was that 400 years after God had given His promise to David that a man would, from his line, would forever sit upon his throne. David's throne fell. And there was no one, there was no one upon that throne. And the people of Israel, they were carried off into captivity, into exile. And for 600 years, the looming question was, has God's promise failed? Will there ever be a king upon the throne? How is it that God has promised to us a king who would rule and reign forever, yet here we are under the rule and reign of Rome? Where is this king? It's been 600 years. Zechariah declares. Can you imagine for an old 
Testament saint here, Zechariah declares that God has provided for us that very king. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, what was the horn of salvation? It was a term derived from an animal whose strength and power resided in its horns. And so it's not just that God has provided for us a king, but a strong and a mighty king, a powerful king, a king who is able to do far more, far greater than any other king. And what is that? A king who can save. This song is about salvation. A king who can save his people from their sins. He is the horn, the power of salvation. This one from the house of David has the very power to save. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, it tells us that this horn is able to save us to the, to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him. You see, what we learn here is that Christ isn't just a Savior, but a Savior who is strong and mighty. Now you might be asking, well, I know that. Why is that of any significance? It's because whoever we are, whatever we may have done in the past, however heinous it may be, He has the power to save. No matter how sinful our past, no matter how sinful our sin, God's grace in Jesus Christ is greater and more powerful than all our sin. He can save us completely. He can save us eternally. But notice that Zechariah's song takes us back even further than the covenant that God made with David, but the covenant He made with Abraham. You see that there? That through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so as Zechariah, as he considered the coming Savior, all of God's promises of old began to swell in his heart. Promises to deliver his people. Promises to redeem his people. Promises to save his people. Promise after promise. And what Zechariah was doing in this song was emphasizing the saving promises of God all throughout ages past to show us that this is not a song about how we save ourselves, nor is it a song about how, how God helps those who help themselves. But this is a song about how God answers His own Word, how God fulfills His own promises, how God keeps His covenant in redeeming and rescuing sinners such as ourselves. We need to know that, Christian. Now there's more here in the first half of this song. There's more here before we move on to the second part of the song. And I'll just give it very quickly and simply point it out to you. Notice Zechariah also tells us as to why, why God in His grace, why He saves us. Look at verse 71. That we would be saved, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, the people of Israel, they thought that this salvation was a deliverance. And I said this last week, 
was a deliverance from earthly enemies, earthly powers, earthly rulers. But you see, it's more than that. Because Zechariah sings here that he delivers us from our sins in verse 77. He delivers us so that we would serve him in holiness and righteousness without fear. And so you see, our greatest enemy isn't a political power. Our, our greatest enemy isn't even the decay of our society. But our greatest enemy is our sin. And we cannot get that confused. Our greatest enemy is the devil and our sin. Our guilt, our condemnation. That's our greatest enemy. And so to try to be all about the other things and not about the main thing, then we get the Gospel wrong. We don't understand the redemption that is in Christ. Well, I won't keep going on with that, but let's look now to the second half of Zechariah's song. And as he does, notice that he commits this second verse to his son John. And he says, you child will be called the prophet there in uh, verse 76. Prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only gives a prophecy concerning his son, but lifts up a prayer for him. And so here is a father praying for his son. You see, Zechariah was told by the angel that his son would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And you can just imagine Zechariah searching through the Scriptures to, to inform his prayer for his son. And he says, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. Here will be your lifelong task to tell others of the salvation which God provides for the forgiveness of their sins through the anticipated Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Zechariah calls it the, the tender mercy of God. And his words there remind us that God's mercy, it's not harsh. His mercy is not harsh, nor is it abrasive, but His mercy is tender. That the forgiveness of God is the supreme expression of His compassionate mercy. His tender mercy toward sinners. And as Zechariah began to close his song, he thought that there he thought that there's nothing more wonderful, nothing more amazing for a sinner to receive the mercy of God. Now while he began this second verse committed to his son John, notice he couldn't help but come back to praising God for his salvation. And as he did, he imagined a group of pilgrims. He imagined a group of pilgrims on a long journey. And as they traveled through the wilderness, they were overtaken by darkness. 
Far from the safety of their home, they were exposed to the terrors of the night. Vicious animals, violent enemies. As verse 79, look with me in verse 79. As they sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. You see, Zechariah was referring to the situation of his people during the dark days before Christ was to come in the flesh. And you see, it's this picture that describes any and all who are without the saving merits of Christ. This is the condition that human beings like ourselves are in apart from the tender mercy of God. Sinners are sitting in darkness. In the darkness of their sin, waiting for death to devour them. And Zechariah goes on to say that all through the long night, these pilgrims, they must have wondered if they were, they were to ever make it to the morning. They prayed for deliverance, waiting for the dawn. And then they saw it on the horizon. They saw the first glimmer of morning light. It was the sunrise. It was the sunrise of their salvation. And Zechariah says from the middle of verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. After darkness, light. This is what it means to be saved. After darkness, light. Salvation is like the first glimmer of dawn after the blackest night. And it's until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we will yet be living in the darkness of unforgiven sin. But God sent to us His Son, who Himself speaks to us in the book of Revelation. And uh, Nate taught the children. In Revelation 22.16, Christ says, I am the root and I am the descendant of David. The bright morning star. He is Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son who is able to save us from the night, able to deliver us from the terrors of our guilt and sins. And if so, if you are not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, will you repent and believe upon Him? Will you look to Him in faith? Will you trust in the saving work by His life, death, and resurrection. If you come to Him as you look to Christ, the dark night of your sin will be over and the day spring of His light will rise in your heart. You will have received the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. And here as Zechariah's song comes to an end, Luke gives us some details here about John. Very short details. Verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. As Zechariah's song ends, some details are given to us about John. But nothing is said anymore for the rest of the Gospel narrative about Zechariah. Nothing more said. As his song ends, not much longer 
also his life. His life and also his wife, Elizabeth. They are no longer mentioned in the gospel narratives after this. Remember, they were old and advanced in years and past the age of childbearing. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that John's parents, they, they died while he was very young, which is all the more reason why he remained in the wilderness. John being in the wilderness is reminiscent of Elijah, another prophet that he would come after who was sent by God into the wilderness and there he was given food by the birds and he drank water by the brook. And it may be that John lived in a similar way, eating locusts and wild honey. But whatever he was doing, whatever he was doing, we know he was about one thing. He was about Christ. Church, as we consider the gospel of God's salvation, would we too be about one thing, Christ? And like Zechariah, overwhelmed and overtaken by the gospel of God's salvation for deliverance of our sins. Because only then, only then will we be able to serve Him in holiness and righteousness without fear. Beloved, that's gospel living. That's gospel living. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a salvation that we have in Jesus Christ in which we have been delivered from the terrors of darkness and our sin. And not only delivered, but transferred into the kingdom of Your beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Would our lives be one of then perpetual praise? And would we seek to glorify You in all that we do? We confess that we have sinned times without number, that we are guilty of pride and unbelief, that though we may profess such a great salvation, we often live contrary to this grace, inconsistent with this mercy when we neglect to seek You in our own daily lives. Forgive us for our sins. Deliver us from any interest of former sins. May we know Christ more and more in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings this day and beyond. In the name of Jesus who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, we pray. Amen.